Welcome to another episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. And with me as always is senior reporter Greg Giroux. It's Monday, January 11th. We said last week would be wild, but little did we know Wednesday would bring an insurrection at the Capitol by pro-Trump forces and a Democratic Senate majority, with both John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock winning runoffs in Georgia. As Democrats push for Trump to be removed from office with just more than a week to go in his presidency, We'll look at just what happened in Georgia last week. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Up first is Jerome's Gem. Jerome's Gem for this episode of Down Ballot Counts is 2001. That was the last year prior to 2021, when the U.S. Senate was evenly divided between the two major parties. The 2000 election may be forever remembered for its razor-thin and controversial presidential election, though it also produced a 50-50 Senate. Because Republican Dick Cheney was vice president and therefore president of the Senate, Mississippi Republican Trent Lott became the majority leader, though Lott and Senate Minority Leader Tom Daschle negotiated a power-sharing agreement under which the two parties had equal membership on committees. The 50-50 Senate lasted all of five months until early June of 2001, when Jim Jeffords of Vermont left the Republican Party and became an independent aligned with the Democrats. In the new 117th Congress, the Senate will become 50-50 upon the swearing-in of Democrats Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, who won runoff elections on January the 5th. Warnock ousted Republican Senator Kelly Leffler, while Ossoff defeated Republican David Perdue. With Democrat Kamala Harris becoming vice president on January the 20th, Democrats will have the majority by virtue of her tie-breaking vote. So, 2001, that's your Jero's gem. All right, up next, we're heading to Georgia. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. In Georgia on Tuesday, Raphael Warnock defeated appointed Senator Kelly Leffler by two percentage points, and John Ossoff unseated Senator David Perdue by one point in a pair of Senate runoffs. Greg, what's your read on how Democrats pulled off this feat? Well, I think the first thing that struck me about the results, Kyle, was that the big turnout in a runoff election, usually you see a drop-off between a general election and a runoff election. The general election, like a presidential election year, like we just had, will bring out a huge turnout. And then there's sort of a fall off for a runoff election held weeks later. But in this runoff election, you had about 4.47 million votes cast, which is about 90% of the turnout of 5 million in the November presidential election. And it exceeded the turnout of 4.1 million in the 2016 presidential election in Georgia. Last time you had a Senate runoff in Georgia was in 2008 when Republican incumbent Saxby Chambliss was pulled into a runoff, about 3.75 million voted in the November election, but then just about 2.1 million voted in the runoff. So a big drop-off from that November election. So this was a lot different in that you had a high turnout. Um, I think uh, Democrats won in large part because of turnout by black voters. DeKalb County, a black majority county just east of Fulton County, Atlanta, more than 80% of its residents voted for Warnock and Ossoff. Uh, DeKalb's county turnout was at about 93% of its November turnout, so above average compared to the rest of the state. Clayton County, a black uh, majority Democratic stronghold south of Atlanta, 
was at 92% of its November turnout. Again, above average. Warnock won 88.6% of the vote in Clayton County, running almost four points ahead of Joe Biden's vote percentage. That was the biggest gap between Warnock and Biden's vote percentage in any of Georgia's 159 counties. So I look at the results, Kyle County by county, it seems clear that there was a high turnout for a runoff and that uh, black voters, always the backbone of Democratic candidates, uh, turned out in this election. Yeah, just remarkable, remarkable numbers. Um, now, for Republicans, there's no escaping the reality that President Trump likely served as more of a distraction and detriment to their cause than, you know, the mobilizing force they'd hoped for. He was obsessed with his own defeat um, and the role Georgia played in it. Um, you know, the focus became Trump's ruthless criticism, his baseless accusations and, and the pressure he put on officials to overturn the result. Um, you know, and then there's this. Republicans always had a fundamental issue with their message. And we talked about it on this podcast. If Trump kept saying he won, how could Republicans argue that a Republican Senate would keep Democrats from controlling all of Washington? How could a Republican Senate be a check on a Democratic president? They can't both be true. Yeah, that's right. And that's the one thing about um uh, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue and their surrogates saying that uh, you needed that you needed to elect them to prevent a uh, complete takeover of Democrats. You had to uh, presume that that meant that Joe Biden was in fact elected uh, president. But as you note, um, you know Trump always makes his elections all makes any Republican uh, elections about himself rather than the team. It seems. I remember the rally he gave in uh, Dalton, Georgia, just before the runoffs, and I think I remember he started out that rally by talking by praising. You know Leffler and Purdue, but then he turned into um, talking more about himself and his own election, and you know those constant uh, baseless accusations that the uh, that the uh, that Joe Biden won fraudulently um, when it was in fact a fair election that uh, Trump lost fair and square. And you're right, it really detracted from the Republican message. Instead of focusing sharpening the contrast between the Republicans and the Democratic candidates, it seemed to uh, just all come back to Trump and uh, really led to, I think, a muddled message for Republicans. Yeah. And Republican consultant Josh Holmes, he's an advisor to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. He told The Washington Post that was their best polled message, being a, a check on Democrat Joe Biden in the White House, um, and they could not use it. Um, just remarkable. Okay, so this leads us to a 50-50 Senate. You talked a little bit about what happened uh, in 2001, uh, the last time the Senate was split that way. W what does this mean for how the Congress is going to function this time around? Well, with Democrats having a 50-50 majority with uh, Kamala Harris as the vice president, the tiebreaker, it does allow the Democrats to set the floor schedule, allows them to set the committee schedule. You know, all those bills that the Democratic-led House passed in 2019 and 2020 that the Republican Senate did not take up, a Democratic-led Senate could take up, um, provided the Democratic-led House again uh, passes them in the 117th Congress. So at least they'll get a hearing in, you know, when they didn't before. Uh, you know, you still need 60 votes to get a lot of things done in the Senate. Of course, most major legislative initiatives require 60 votes because of the uh, filibuster powers that are afforded a minority party in the Senate. But there are some things that Democrats can do with 50 votes plus Kamala Harris in reconciliation, which is the the, the process by which um, the Senate can advance certain budget and tax-related measures like expanding Obamacare, for example. Um, 
executive and judicial nominations can now advance by simple majority. So that's something uh, they could do. Um, that used to be those were had filibuster protections as well, but now you can you know get a new Supreme Court justice, for example, uh, pass with a simple majority vote. The Congressional Review Act, which um, you know, looks at regulations that Democrats could use that to cancel regulatory actions by the Trump administration. So there are a number of things Democrats could do, provided they have party unity, of course, if they get all of their people together. You have to wonder what people like uh, Joe Manchin, uh, the uh, moderate Democrat from West Virginia, he'll have to sign on with a lot of these Democratic initiatives if uh, the Democrats are going to try and get things through a 50-50 Senate. And of course, on major legislative initiatives, as I mentioned, 60 votes are needed. And Mitch McConnell, even as minority leader, will still have the votes to block or thwart a lot of the big ticket Democratic initiatives. Yeah, and we could see a Supreme Court vacancy as soon as this year. Um, all right, I want to talk a little bit about Georgia's future. Uh, Perry Bacon at 538 wrote an interesting piece on how Democrats hope Georgia will be the next Virginia, which has gone blue since Obama won it in 2008. Uh, but it could end up as the next North Carolina which has voted Republican since Obama won it in 2008. Um, but I think we have to declare Georgia a purple state, right? I mean, it's amazing. Georgia and Arizona now both have two Democratic senators and both voted Democratic for president. It's just remarkable to think about. Yeah, it really is. Um, we have seen the changes in Virginia. I wouldn't put Georgia in that basket just yet. Um, but it is, um, I think, more competitive for Democrats, as we've seen, than North Carolina um, you know, North Carolina does not have the huge population centers that I think Georgia does. You know, you look at the, you know, I think the uh, the, the triangle in, in North Carolina, it's, it doesn't have as large a percentage of the vote as, say, metropolitan Atlanta does for Georgia. And one thing we've seen in Georgia is that you have Democratic strongholds like Fulton County, which includes Atlanta, DeKalb County, which is just east of Atlanta, as I mentioned, voted more than 80 percent Democratic in the runoff elections. Clayton County, just south of Atlanta, voted almost 90 percent for Raphael Warnock. Um, so you've got a big block of votes in metropolitan Atlanta. You've got Gwinnett and Cobb counties, which used to be Republican strongholds, suburban counties of Atlanta, that are now voting Democratic by double digits. So yeah, Georgia is probably somewhere between Virginia and North Carolina right now. Um, but you know, 16 electoral votes, that's a big prize. And of course, it's two Senate seats were a big prize for Democrats. And uh, one reason why Georgia voted Democratic, I mean, the 2020 election is that those uh, suburban counties that used to be very Republican um, are now uh, voting Democratic, Gwinnett and Cobb in particular. All right. And I think we can already start looking ahead to 2022. Raphael Warnock, of course, just won a special election. He's going to have to run again in two years. Um, and then you have the 2022 governor race, right? Trump was absolutely crushing Governor Brian Kemp uh, for the past two months with the way he handled the election. Um, and by handling the election, I mean, certifying Joe Biden uh, had won the state. Um, but, you know, how does that affect Kemp's primary prospects? And then if he survives the primary, how does it affect him against a Democrat in the general election? Yeah, those 2022 elections are going to be very interesting. It's going to be a big year for governor's elections. They tend to more, get you elect more of them in uh, in the midterm election years than you do in presidential election years. It'll be very interesting to see what happens with Brian Kemp, uh, given that he's made a, an avowed political enemy of the president right now when he was once an ally. We still got a ways to go until that primary. It'd be interesting to see you know, who steps up to challenge, if anyone, uh, Brian Kemp in the Republican primary. Um, and it'll always be interesting to see what uh, Trump's uh, clout will be like in a year and a half from now when he'll be an ex-president for a fair number of time. You know, will um, 
will he still have the same pull over the Republican primary electorate that he's had the last four years? He's certainly not going to fade away or go go you know uh, shuffle off quickly. But I do wonder what kind of uh, clout he will have in Republican primaries in about a year and a half when Brian Kemp will be facing Republican primary voters after uh, crossing the president for, as you mentioned, doing something as uh, as seemingly innocuous as uh, certifying a legal election that Trump lost fair and square in Georgia. It's a great question. And, and you'd think what happened last week uh, you know, may have or should have some detrimental effect uh, on his political poll in the future. Uh, but we'll see. This is Down Ballot Counts. All right, that's it for us today. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg Government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination. He endorsed Joe Biden on March 4th. Down Ballot Counts was produced by David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg Government's website, about.bgov.com. We'll be recording sporadically this year, but we'll talk to you soon. This is Adam Ellington, and I'm here to announce a new season of Uncommon Law, a narrative podcast series from Bloomberg Law. My co-hosts and I will speak with African-American attorneys and hear their perspectives on how big law is, or in some cases, isn't adapting to become more diverse and inclusive. It's not fair, but what can be better than being on the front lines of helping to make this country better for all of us? If not us, who? If not now, when? Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts.